now, God had laid in my heart um, a word that it's kind of impacted me in a lot of ways, especially the way I see the world. But I just want to say this before I start, that this is good news, because it's a gospel, and I believe the gospel actually means good news. And um, I also believe that the gospel should make you better, not bitter. So I hope at the end of my word that I'm not going to end up, uh, you know, making you worse than you were before. But I also believe that the, Bible, the, the gospel helps us to, to retune back to God. You know, like a radio that is poorly tuned and you have static in the background. It, it kind of confuses. You can't hear clearly what is, is going on. But when you're finally tuned to a station, you can hear that station, you know, perfectly without any static. And I, I think sometimes that's the, what the gospel does. brings us back to where we ought to be. And I also believe that the gospel um, is like a plumb line, you know. It's a, it's a measure the plumb line is immovable, but it is the wall that has to uh, align itself to the plumb line to get its proper angle. And that's what the Bible does. It helps us to align ourselves back to where we ought to be. Um, I'm going to move a bit back and forth between the Old and New Testament today because I want to speak on, on, on something that has been kind of in my heart for a while now. And in a way, I've been convicted about it for a while, and I felt that it was something that I, I could bring as a blessing to the church. I'm taking my first um, reading from the book of Psalms, just a portion of it, Psalm 51. Um, verse, I think it's verse uh, 17. It is a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. This psalm was written by David after uh, Nathan had confronted him about what, what happened with, um, with Beersheba and had um, um, Uriah killed. And he wrote this psalm. And I used to ask myself, what does a broken heart look like? Really? What does it mean for somebody to have a broken heart? Is it about sorrow or is it about how we feel when we've done something wrong? Then I looked at it a bit at scripture and I looked, discovered that the word broken and contrite could actually be interchanged. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. So a broken heart is a heart that is crushed and torn apart by humility. A heart that is broken in the sense that you are repentant for what you've done. And I keep thinking, if that is the case, then that means a broken heart is, can be exchanged for the word humility. A humble heart is also a broken heart. Because I know one thing, that God is drawn to humble hearts. Scripture is full of Incidents where God had um, rejected the proud and lifted up the humble. Now, Isaiah 62 um, verse 2 says that this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
This is the one to whom I will look. In other words, God actually seeks out humble people. So in the midst of a myriad of people, God's eyes are solely focused on those that are humble and are contrite of heart and trembles at his word. So the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So if God is drawn to humble hearts, to broken hearts, what is it about broken hearts that actually attracts God, that makes him look at such people? I believe it's when a heart actually acknowledges its position, when a heart actually acknowledges its place in the grand scheme of things, that we are sinful and God is holy. When we understand that, it puts us in a, in a better frame of mind to understand who we are in God and in Christ. So, you know, I ask myself, if God is attracted to broken hearts, if God is attracted to humble people, then what happened to Adam and Eve at the beginning? Now, imagine if Adam, if Adam and Eve had gone to God. Okay, they've, they've sinned, they've committed a crime, they, they've done what is evil in the sight of God. What if they had gone before God and fallen on their faces and appealed to the grace of God? Would, they, would the punishment have been as harsh as it was? And why did they hide? These are some of the questions that keep running around in my head. Why did they hide? I believe that it was pride. Pride was the beginning. Because when the devil came to tempt them, he came to tempt them with the fact that, you know, you can be as God. You can know all things like him. The devil wanted to, he wanted to use the same thing that he stumbled with, with man. And they stumbled. Because the devil stumbled with disobedience. He wanted to be like God. He presented the same instance to Adam and Eve, or to Eve first. And so, in other words, when they fell, they lost sight of the most important thing that they were supposed to know. They lost sight of who God was. The God of compassion. The God of grace. The God of love. But instead... The life was now filled with fear. They now became less than what they were supposed to be. And I believe that the times, because the Bible said that when Adam and Eve um, were first created, God used to walk with them in the cool of the evening. So he spent time with them. So they should have actually have a knowledge of who this God is. Unless maybe they just enjoyed Eden, you know, and they never really bothered to, to know this, this God that created us, that spends time with us, who is he, what does he like, what does he do, what does he, what does he prefer. But I also believe that there was an element of shame that prevented them from asking for forgiveness. 
Because if they had asked for forgiveness, I believe in my heart that God wouldn't have been as harsh as she was. But they never asked for forgiveness. What did they do? They started looking for who to blame. Adam blamed Eve. No, no, no. Eve blamed the devil. And Adam blamed, he said, is it not this woman that you gave me? So in other words, Adam blamed God for giving him Eve. And they were looking for somebody to blame. Instead of turning inwards and saying, you know what? We've done wrong. We've done cardinally wrong. This is like, you know, they should have known where they were at. But pride was such a huge stumbling block for them. I believe that I've read the Bible a couple of times. I've not finished the whole Bible, but I've read lots and lots of books in the Bible. And the Bible is full of instances that suggest that God is constantly opposed to anything of the world. Anything that is of the world, he opposes it. He prefers the lowly to the proud. He prefers the poor to the rich. I remember when I was reading about the, um, the hammer. No, not the hammer, the, uh, the axe head that floated. You know, it such thrilled me because that is, again, opposed to the worldly way of doing things. Of course, heavy things sink. But a hammer that is heavy floats. God is a God of opposites. And I think it's in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, that it says that, look, enmity, a friendship with the world is an enmity with God. If you grasp with your whole hands to the things of the world, you will miss out so much of what God has in store for you because your focus is completely away from him. So, and because of that, I've also discovered that humility is a virtue that is almost dead in the world. The world does not honor, recognize, or uphold humble people. In fact, if you're humble, you're a doormat, and people will step on you. Rather, we, hum- we, we, we uplift the proud. We uplift those that we think, oh, they're important. They're worthy of, of praise. You know, there are are people that can be upheld. Living a humble life doesn't really get you anywhere in the world of today. I mean, some of you can remember the last time you practiced humility at work and what that got you. Did people acknowledge you for being humble or did they see you as 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 an easy mark, an opportunity to get ahead? It's happened to me lots of times. You get used, and people use you as a stepping stone to the next level of uh, the promotion in their lives. So, the world is constantly chasing after famous and notable people. But God is chasing after humble and lowly people. So, how do we know that pride, when pride actually sneaks in? Because it's so subtle. The devil has got a plan. I, I enjoyed uh, Krubas' uh, message last Sunday. I wish you guys were here. It's true. Uh, if you have time, look at, just listen. On the, unfortunately, we didn't record it. But that was a brilliant message. See, sometimes we, we lose sight of the fact that we are at war 
The devil is alive and he's, he's doing havoc on earth. Sometimes it's almost, you're scared to mention the devil or the kingdom of darkness because you don't know what people are going to think, you know. What's this guy on about? We're so scared now to confront that which we're faced with every day. It's almost like the devil is, is, is on holidays, you know. So long as you're here, the devil is on holidays. But when you get to Africa, yeah, you know, <laughs> yes, the devil is actually active and alive and doing things. But one thing I do know is that pride, the devil uses pride in a very, very subtle way. Before you know it, it sneaks in and you find yourself, it's not, it's not actually having a sense, oh, I'm proud about things or, or this or that. But it's a sense of your being changes and how you, you view the, the world changes. For instance, when you stop acknowledging and testifying of the miracles and the goodness of God, whereby you, you actually don't recognize that what is happening to you is providence, is God stepping in on your behalf. Next is, is you struggle to take part in anything that would challenge your faith in God. So that means you avoid all prayer meetings. <laughs> or even to pray for somebody, or even to, to bring in a godly perspective to a worldly problem. When problems arise, God becomes the last resort. You try everything else first before you then consider maybe I should call aunt and, and pray for me. And that's Pride. And what, what it does is automatically it puts a wedge between us and God. And it's such a subtle thing. But before you know what's happening, it takes hold of you. And sometimes we're not even aware that it's happening until somebody actually points it out, you know what? This is pride. Sometimes pride actually can come from false humility. We've got to be aware the devil is out to trip you. Let me just keep making mention of that because sometimes we forget that he has a plan. Just like God has a plan for your life, the devil has a plan for your life. Amen. Now, I love, I love Spurgeon. He's, he's just an amazing um, man of God. And I shouldn't use that term, man of God. We're all men of God and women of God. But he's an amazing um, preacher. And I was looking at some of his writing on the path. Spurgeon believes that there are different types of pride. It depends on what you are, where you are at. A particular part, pride would take a hold of you. He talks about the, the, the heretic pride. The pride of, you know, when you refuse anything that has to do with God. When you... Um, Bring up any argument to disprove the word of God. You know, people with the, the so-called evolutionists or the atheists who believe that uh, there's, there's no way a God who loves his people can, you know, reside with them and in them. And so you would do anything. You would use any ideology to disprove the existence of God. And it talks about the, the curious pride. You know, the, you know, you know some of them. You know those people that 
want to delve into every mystery in scripture. They, they want to tell you that we, we know about the mysteries of, the, of, the, of Revelation, the, the, the book. And they are so puffed up by that knowledge. And they feel so proud that, yes, I can explain the mysteries of the things of God. They forget about the fact that the Bible is a very simple book written for simple people like you and me. The people that existed and did things in the Bible were simple men and women used by God to do extraordinary things. And so they take the word of God and they make it, it becomes so complicated. They, they preach and only the so-called intellectuals can understand what they're saying. But the, the Bible was meant to be a word for every human being that walked the earth. And then you have the, the pride of the persecutor. I know, I think I can, I can actually confess I've, I've been here before. You know, the people that actually believe that their opinion is the only opinion that should, you know, exist. As a teacher, you kind of feel a bit upset if someone challenges your knowledge, especially in your subject, you know. And then you have people that will, believe, you know, when it comes to scripture, they don't believe that anybody else's opinion or understanding of scripture matters, except theirs. And they will persecute you. They will come after you if you challenge them on what they believe that they are experting. Oh, do you know that I'm a, I have a PhD in theology and who are you to question my understanding of scripture? And I, I believe it's pride. It is pride. And of course, the pride of the impenitent, the unrepentant heart. Those that believe that they are not slaves, they've never been shackled, so why would they need a God to save them? And so they will hold themselves above anything that has to do with God. But I keep going back to Christ all the time. What was his life like? Why, from what Quivers read this morning, talks about, I think it, was, it wasn't Quivers, it was um, Colin, when we were praying, about the, the, the boy, the guy that was um, dropped down from the roof of the building into the, the building where Christ was. He said that there were thousands of people around the place, and nobody could even find room to stand. Why were they all drawn to Christ? What was it about him that attracted so many people? What is it about the fragrance of his presence that people wanted to be around him? Even the poor, the lowly, the, the rejected, those that they call the untouchables, they all wanted to identify with him. The humility of Christ, amazingly, was prophesied before he came. I think it was in, in Zechariah... Um, Chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This, I don't know what they call this in English, but I know there's a term for it. Because it, it sucks out two, two opposites. A king. It describes a king and it describes something completely opposite to kingship. A king doesn't ride on donkeys. A king rides on a steed, a white steed, 
A king rides on a gold chariot. But this king came riding on a donkey. An animal that the common man will use. The man on the streets. The man that is unrecognized. I know there was a time somebody came to this preach in this church and he was asking, if Christ walked into this building now, would we recognize him as Christ? Would we? And if they described the king of kings, this was before he actually was born. If they described him like this, it showed the way he was supposed to come. So as God was laying down the foundation of, of life for man, he was also trying to show us how we are to live, wasn't he? He was describing the, 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 the kingship of Christ. It was to come humble, riding on a donkey. If Christ is our example, isn't that the way we're supposed to live also? What I believe is that as the first Adam, out of pride, disobeyed God and ran away to hide, the second and glorious Adam chose to humble himself in obedience to the will of God. So, thinking about Christ and his nature and the, what drew people to him, I kind of see two, um, two, two processes happening here. A king and a man or an ordinary person. God and mankind. So there, was, there were two natures that Christ carried. His human nature and his divine nature. Which part drew people to him? Was it his divine nature or was it his human nature? I believe in my heart it was both. It was both. Because he, his, his godly nature, his divine nature, produced an amazing work in their midst. He performed miracles. He did things that they had never seen before. But his human nature appealed to their hearts. He was like them. He didn't stoop down from on high to, to, to be with them. He became like them. His birth showed that he wanted to be like the people, like the normal people. I, can, I, I believe that Christ lived a normal life like everybody else. He was the son of a carpenter. He probably would have walked with his father, you know, doing jobs for people. So everybody would have seen him. He was just like everybody else. But also, it carried in him his divine nature. Because the Bible did teach us that Christ was both God and man completely. His godly nature again produced that, um, the wonderful work that he did, that people saw and knew there was something special about this man. So, if God is calling us to be more like Christ, is it his human nature or his divine nature that should attract us to him or should make us want to be like him? He did say that greater things shall you do when I'm gone. We have been empowered by Christ to do even greater work than he has done. And I believe my, with my whole heart 
that for you to do those greater things that he promised, you've got to also have his, his human nature, a humble heart, a heart that is meek and mild. He said, learn of me. I am meek and mild. You've got to have that heart to be able to do that which he has done. And so I keep thinking humility. Humility is simply a way of us seeing our rightful place in the scheme of things. Looking at our sinfulness and God's holiness. That puts us in a place where we will understand the work that Christ had done. That should humble us and bring us to a place of saying, you know what, Lord? Without you, I am nothing. Unto you be all glory. And so, so pride is one thing that can becloud us and prevent us from seeing all that eternity has in store for us. Pride keeps us earth-focused. But humility and a humble and a broken heart keeps us heaven-focused. And so, I know that even when Paul was talking about um, the, the, the problem that he had, I, was talking, I think it's in um, Acts 20, 19, he talks about all humility. What does he mean by all humility? Which means that there are a couple of different humilities or situations in which we are called to be humble. I believe that one of them is um, humility before you're called. You know, I think it's in Isaiah where he talks about the potter taking a, a, a clay and molding um, a vessel. And that vessel is um, fired in the kiln. When it's fired and it comes out, it's strong and it looks really pretty. And the porter puts the, the vessel on the pedestal. My question is, if that is us, how do we deal with a situation whereby we are waiting upon the Lord? Can we humble ourselves in that position of waiting and say, Lord, your time. You make all things beautiful in your own time. I'll humble myself and wait on you. Though I feel that I'm ready, I've gone through the, the whole process, I've been through the fire, I feel I am ready. But let your will be done. Amen. So it is God who determines the time for the vessel to be used, where the vessel will be used, and for what purpose. And I believe that being humble in time of waiting is such a, an amazing thing because it's not about being um, stagnant or standing in one place. It's about allowing your life to reflect the fact that you are a child of God waiting for your father to place you where you ought to be. Rather than preempting him or taking your life in your hands and feel, Lord, you're being too slow. God is never too slow, and he's never too late. His timing is perfect. So, Paul did say in Philippians 2, 5, 8, this is one of my best Bible verses. I, I, I love this verse so much because anytime I feel myself slipping towards that place where I feel a bit big-headed about anything, I go and read this verse, and it realigns me back again to who I am. 
It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest of place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This Bible verse puts me in my place all the time. If we're called to be like Christ, if this is our lot in life, then humility, while we serve God, should be the greatest desire and the greatest aim and pursuit of every Christian. Because this gives us an idea of what God actually, this is the heart of God for every single Christian. He has nothing different, no plan B. This is the plan A. If God has called us to this, then when you are in a place of position, you still hold yourself accountable to one who is above all things. Because it means that though you might have people under you, serving you, or under your supervision, remember that there is he whom to whom you give account to. So it doesn't matter where you are, your position, whether you are in waiting or whether you are used by God mightily. This is what you are called to. Let this mind, let this attitude be in you. Your attitude should be like that of Christ. He was God in every sense. He could have walked away from Calvary and nothing would have happened. He could have done anything else. But he chose the cross. We sang this just now. He chose the cross. Which means that the same way for every one of us, when you read this verse, you either choose to live like this or to live the way that you want. In Botswana, I lived in Botswana for a while. There was one time there was a catchphrase all over that there is no demilitarized zone in the kingdom of God. It's either you are here or you are there. There's no mid-ground where you can say, oh, you know, here I can actually you know, uh, compromise or maybe mix things up. It's either you are for God or you're for the world. And this is what we are called to. So, if God is calling us to be more and more like Christ in everything that we do, in our attitude, holding nothing to ourselves, but releasing all that we're given as if it's not ours, because Christ, he released his divinity and allowed himself to be treated like a common criminal. Now, I know that God is not calling us to be treated like a common criminal or to go through what Christ went through because only he could have done that. But he's calling us 
to have the heart that Christ had, a heart that was so humble, that was so lowly that he could allow himself to be placed in that position for one reason only, for you and I. And so, I know it is impossible to live this life. That's why it's only Christian that can live this life. Only a child of God, born of the Spirit, can live this life. You can only be empowered to live this life. Because I don't think any human being on this planet will willingly sacrifice themselves for another person. Think about it. Even people struggle to sacrifice themselves for their, their kids or their family. The fact that Christ has shown us that God is constantly looking out for people that have a heart that says, you know what, Lord, you are my source. There's no other plan that I have. You are all and everything about my life is you. Hearts that are broken, torn apart purposely by you. Hearts that are saying, Lord, I choose this life. I choose to live this life. But you also, also notice that in Christ doing that, there was a reward. So in your humility, God is, God's plan is not to leave you wallowing in a low place. Your humility produces a reward. And the reward of humility is to be raised up by God. But raised up by God, still knowing your place in eternity. Still knowing who raised you up. Because many times, men and women are raised up and they lose sight of he who has called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so, I believe in my heart that the ultimate sign of Christ's humility was the, was the, um, the night at Gethsemane where he kind of, I believe that was where my salvation was wrought because that was where he battled. The Bible says that he sweated blood that was where he battled not the choice whether to go to the cross or not, but the burden of what he was to carry, your sin and my sin. The burden of the pain that he had to go through. And that sin produced a suppression from the Father. And I think that was probably what Christ could not bear, to be separated from his Father. But he chose. He said, he says, I think it's Matthew 26, 40. Uh, 26, yeah, from 39. So going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And for me, this is the heart that we need to have as Christians. 
in every situation. But pride will deny you this. Pride will subtly make this difficult for you to do, to allow God to have his way. Pride will make you find reasons why you should do things your own way. But a humble heart will yield constantly, will bend like a reed in the presence of God. So, in my heart, I believe that it would be a wonderful opportunity because as people were called or drawn to Christ, men, women, people from different parts of the world were drawn to him like a magnet. We were also drawn to him because that's why we became what we are today, born-again Christians living under his grace and love. But times happen that we're drawn away by pride and we subtly kind of would draw backwards. As you hear my word this morning, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit puts a tug in your heart like a string that draws you closer to Christ this morning to say, Lord, I know I haven't always gotten it right. I haven't always done the right thing. We're all, none of us is perfect. Like I said, the devil has a plan. His plan is to use any possible way to make you lose sight of who you are in Christ. And of course, when you lose sight of who you are in Christ, what happens is you become despondent, you feel you start feeling, you know, weary. You start feeling, I'm not living up to God's expectation. And it's almost like, a, a, call it the domino effect. It, it, it's, it just keeps on sliding, slowly but surely, until he makes you ineffective for God. And that's how the devil works. Once he gets you to become ineffective for God, then he feels happy, because then you are not challenging his kingdom, you're not storming the gates of hell, your prayers are not going up to heaven as a, as a memorial before God every day. And he feels he's one. But I believe that today God is calling us to a place where as we see the heart of his son who gave his life that you and I should walk in freedom. We were looking at that tear fund um, video. I think it's in John 10.10. 10. He said, I've come that you may have life, a life in abundance. And that is what God has for you and I, a life of abundance. Abundance what? Abundance wealth? Abundance prosperity? Maybe, but there's more to God than wealth and prosperity. God is he's more interested in you and I making heaven than he is interested in you living a life of wealth in this life. I, I, I truly believe this. 
that if, if, if extreme wealth will buy you from going to heaven, God will deny you that. Because he's far more interested in you living eternity with him than you living a life of pleasure on this planet. So, what is the root to brokenness? What is the root to humility, a heart that is humbled? I truly believe it is prayer. Prayer is the, I call it the equalizer. Especially if you pray the lost prayer. We learned quite amazingly a lot of wonderful new things about our lost prayer through um, Michael Eaton. I've always known the lost prayer was a powerful prayer, but I mean, Michael just exposed so much of what God had stored. It was like, um, I think our lost prayer is more like, um, like a coded message in which you unpack there's so much involved. If you do say our lost prayer, the beginning of our lost prayer puts you exactly where you need to be. Because it, it means immediately reveals your position in the grand scheme of things. It starts with our Father. Automatically, once you call God Father, what does that mean? You're a child. You're his child. And if you're God's child, that means you depend on him. See, that's a subtle plan of a devil. Because if he stops you praying, then you forget who you're dependent, who you're dependent on. And he'll make you to look inwards and begin to uphold self. But the lost prayer, or prayer generally, gives us an understanding of who we are in Christ. Because then you know where your sustenance comes from, where your provision comes from. Then you understand that who God is. A, a father is... It's not just a sole provider of sustenance to his children. A father gives life and contentment and everything to his children. And, and when we understand that of God, then we understand what humility truly means. Because then you humble yourself to come under his protection, under his provision, under his love, under his grace. And that is why the first thing that the devil attacks in your, in your heart is your prayer life. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm actually talking to myself. The struggle times when you struggle to even say five minutes prayer because you're thinking of solutions to your problems. When the solution is so perfectly revealed, let your will be done. Let your will be done. If the will of God is sovereign, as we say it is, then we ought not to worry or scheme or plot how to solve problems. Because he takes over our problems and makes them his. So, in closing... 
I'd like to make a call. If you've heard my word this morning, and you believe in your heart that God is calling you to a place of what the gospel does, realignment, a refocus, a new understanding of who he is in your life. Or that you need to actually dethrone yourself from a seat of, of who controls and rules in your world. I would love to pray with you this morning because I believe the gospel, like I said, the plan of God for the gospel is to make us better, not better. It's to make us refocus our life again so that we can continue this battle, this race that we run. You know, Paul says that I, 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 I beat myself daily so that I do not in the end, lose that which everybody else has gained. And I believe that if God is speaking into your life right now, maybe there's an area in your life where you have kind of shielded God from getting into because you, you, you've taken ownership of it or rulership of it. And God is saying, my child, let me carry your burden. Let me be your father. Let me be your God. Christ says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, he also said that how many of us, by worrying about tomorrow, can change the outcome? You can't. So if our anxiety, if our worries, if our plotting does not change anything, what is better? Isn't it handing over our burdens and our life into his hands and allow him to do what he does best, to be our God and our Father? Amen. So I'd love to, if you feel a tug in your heart that you need us to pray together, you Myself and some of the guys in the prayer ministry, please, I'd love you to, um, to come forward. And let's stand together and rededicate our lives again back to the King of Kings. And allow him to take control of that which, you know, which is rightfully his, our lives. Amen.